I'm so thankful to join you uh, all. At, so just so glad to be at Hope Church Mississauga. This church uh, really is dear to my heart. Um, and so I'm just so thankful I'm here. The, the, the pastoral team is indeed really, really dear to, to my heart. I've, I've privileged to have uh, friends here at this church who I've known since my days at, at Hope Oakville, uh, originally from Hope Church, uh, Toronto West, and even some, friend, some dear, dear friends who I've known uh, since my university days. So it, it is really, really sweet to be here on this church. It's so personally dear to me. Um, it's a, I have complicated feelings when it comes to uh, preaching here because every time I come to Hope Mississauga, I, I want to hear uh, Ted preach because he's one of my favorite preachers. So I'm a little disappointed that I don't get to hear him. Um, but hey, we get the word of God nonetheless. Um, let's, let's pray as we begin. Our Father, we come to you now and we ask for you to anoint the preaching of your word. God, we ask that uh, as we open it, as we behold um, your truth, that your light um, would shine. Lord, it says in your word that your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. But God, we acknowledge uh, that sometimes our hearts are hard. So we ask that you cut our hearts, that you convict us, and that you move us uh, through your word. In your most precious name, amen. Amen. Uh, last week, my wife Joyce and I, we had a spare morning, a spare morning where the agenda was open, uh, and she just, she asked me, hey, what do you want to do this morning? Sort of a loaded question in a pandemic. Uh, my reply was, you know what, I, I just want to get in the car and get out there. Just go and get out. And she said, well, where to? I said, anywhere. I mean, we don't have to leave the car. We don't have to be irresponsible. I just want to get out there out there. And in the wake of recent stay-at-home orders, the craving to get out there is perhaps only amplified more. And this is, I think, more than a case of cabin fever, of just needing to get out and stretch your legs, because oftentimes out there represents so much more. Out there is a place where we believe our desires and our dreams will come true. As a, as a kid, my wife used to sing the song, somewhere out there, if love can see us through, then we'll be together somewhere out there, out where dreams come true. And especially during this pandemic time, out there is where freedom is. Out there is where the cure is going to come from. We want to tune in to the news and find out what's the latest from out there that will deliver us from this predicament. Out there is a symbol of something new and fresh, perhaps a return to normal. And ultimately, out there can often symbolize us and our looking for hope. Hope, out there. Hope is out there, we tell ourselves. But could it be that we're overlooking what real hope is? A hope from God that isn't out there, but is in here because of Christ? What if there's a hope that is greater and richer than any man-made hope, and it doesn't come from us, but is closer than we think? That's what our passage this morning is about. It's about a new reality of who lives in us as Christ followers, and the hope that comes with him. Our passage this morning is all about Christ in us, the hope of glory. And that's the title of our message, Christ in us, the hope of glory. 
So I just want to invite you to turn to the passage with me now. It's found in Colossians chapter 1, verse 27 to 29. Colossians 1, 27 to 29. And as you're turning there, I just want to give you a bit of context. Uh, Colossians is a prison epistle. And that means Paul's writing out of prison under his own lockdown. And being in prison, you might think he might have a pessimistic and dour tone, but he doesn't. Because he speaks like he's really found something. Like he's found a secret. So let's read, starting at verse 24, let's read some of the context. Colossians 1, 24. Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister, according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known. In this verse, Paul is saying that he's rejoicing in his suffering. But he's in prison. He's under lockdown. He's under his own stay-at-jail order. But he's rejoicing. And he goes on to explain a little bit more of his situation. He explains, I'm, I'm suffering. The reason is it's for the church. I'm suffering so that the church doesn't have to suffer. And as you read this, you think, oh, wow. Paul must be extremely noble. I wonder, is that the secret, is the secret to, to how he can be rejoicing? Does Paul just have some sort of extra nobility? Well, look at verse 25. It goes on to explain that his, he's suffering joyfully for the sake of the church because it's the very church he was appointed a minister and given a mission. And what was his mission? To make the word of God fully known. Now, you may stop at this point in the text and say, ah, I, that must be it. That must be his secret. The secret to having this joy in prison and through suffering is to have this special calling and mission, right? I mean, Paul's secret to joy must have been that he was one of those super Christians I read about in books like Hudson Taylor or William Carey, who just has this incredible resolve and incredible call and mission. That's the secret to true meaning and joy amidst trial, Right? And, and you can read that and think, maybe that's how I should get out of my funk. Maybe there is a new mission and a new call for my life. Maybe there is a grand purpose out there. Maybe that's the thing that will give me joy. A new lease on life out there. But I don't think that that's what we're seeing. Because this simply, in the rest of our text, and we'll see, this simply is not what Paul is emphasizing. What we'll see is that he doesn't emphasize a mission that is driving him. He starts to talk about the message. You see, if this grand mission and purpose out there was Paul's secret, he probably would have spent the rest of the passage talking about how earth-shattering and life-giving his mission was. But he doesn't. He's not driven internally by the external mission. He starts talking in the rest of the passage about how earth-shattering and life-giving the gospel message is. And this is how he describes the message in verse 26. Look at verse 26. He calls the word of God the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Paul here shows us his secret here. And the secret of his rejoicing isn't found in his ministry, in his mission, but it's found in the mystery of the gospel message. 
With dripping wonder, he's marveling at the treasured gospel message. Look at that verse again. A mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Paul's doing something amazing here. We often look at verses like this and we just gloss over them. We, we say, all right, get me to the meat. Get me to the part that, which is applicable to my life. But what Paul is doing here is he's saying, this is the part that's applicable. I want you to slow down and take a look and take a look at what I'm looking at. He calls it a mystery. It is this curious and unique thing. It's hidden and concealed, and it's been kept under wraps. Look at the text. For ages and generations, but now it has been revealed. He's beckoning us to read the verse slowly and stop and gaze at the hallowed word of God. He said, this is the word of God, hidden for ages and generations, but now it's revealed. Do you see how special it is? I'm gonna, he's saying, I'm not going to talk about my ministry and my mission right now. I'm going to talk about the message and the mystery of the message. It's the hallowed word of God. Do you see the wonder with which he holds the word of God that he's supposed to proclaim? He shows us that the word of God is not just some tame pedestrian word. Sometimes we look at God's word like we look at vitamins. We, hope, we, we, we grab them in our hands and like a bottle of good, ancient, nice platitudes and adages, we find that we can just pop it into our mouth whenever we need a pick-me-up. But it's perhaps nothing to stop for, nothing to stop and gaze at. When I've been to Costco, I've seen displays for the newest blender, but never for vitamin C. It's just not something you stop and gaze at. But God's word isn't like a vitamin that you simply pass by in the grocery store. It's more like undiscovered, unearthed treasure. That's the image that Paul's giving here. He's saying, don't you see the word of God hidden for ages and generations, but now it's revealed. It's not the thing you pass by in the grocery aisle. It's the thing you stumble on. And he, he uses the very word treasure. Look a few verses down in Colossians chapter 2, verse 3. He talks about the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Treasure. It's a hidden, the word of God is a hidden treasure that you stumble on. And that's completely different from stumbling on a new vitamin in the grocery store. This past week, I've read old stories of people stumbling on hidden treasure. They're just going on a walk on a random, regular uh, hiking trail, and they, they would just stumble on treasure. And their response upon finding that treasure was think words like, I was shaking, I was freaking out, I was hugging the person beside me, I couldn't sleep at night. Because that's what happens when you stumble on hidden treasure. You're amazed. You're shaking. Imagine you stumbled upon a hidden buried treasure box, and it has an inscription that says, the contents of this box are a divine gift. And they contain the very words of God, parts of God's word hidden for ages and generations, but now uncovered to, reveal, to be revealed fully to the world. In opening this box, you will find the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed. What would your reaction be? I would guess that you'd be freaking out, that you'd be shaking, and with a deep sense of wonder and adventure and curiosity, you would want to open the box. And imagine you see a letter sitting in that box. If you open that letter, it would sound a lot like verse 27. Look at verse 27. To them, 
God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. Hear that verse again. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. Man, Paul is really excited about something. He is absolutely amazed. He's peered into this mystery and he is dumbfounded. Look at the way he describes it. He doesn't just say to the saints God chose to make known this mystery. He says that the mystery has glory to it. He says the glory of this mystery. Glory being the very essence of God's character. Commentator O'Brien observes that the apostle wished to emphasize this wonderful mystery partook of the character of God himself. He holds the mystery in his hands and he says there's a glory to it that partakes in the very character of God himself. But, But that's not all. He doesn't just say to the saints God chose to make known the glory of this mystery. He says that the glory has richness. He says that the God chose to make known the riches of the glory of this mystery. It's not just glorious, but richly glorious. But that's not all. The verse says that God chose to make known how great are the riches of the glory of this mystery. He says the glories of this mystery, they're not rich. They're not just rich. They're greatly rich. They are rich, rich. They are bridal path rich. How great. How rich. How glorious. How marvelous. How wonderful. And it's so richly glorious that God isn't just issuing a subtle memo. He's not giving us a little footnote. It says in the text, to them God chose to make known He declared it. He announced it. This is the greatest unveil. This is the greatest keynote. The next iPhone announcement has nothing on this announcement. He knows how great it is, and he's building it up. He's building up how greatly, richly glorious this mystery is that's about to be unfolded and unveiled. And at this point, you're reading, and you're hearing, and you're dying to hear. What's the mystery already? What's the real secret? Show me. Unveil it. I'm dying to know. I'm dying to know. Show me what this glorious mystery is. And he says in verse 27, the rest of the verse reads, this mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. The secret to Paul's life wasn't some mission and calling in ministry out there. It turns out that the secret for Paul was this glorious mystery in his here. It was the glorious mystery of Christ in you, the hope of glory. So let's break that down because it is absolutely stunning. Let's look at it the way Paul is looking at it. Our first point is simply this. Number one, Christ is in you. Christ is in you. Uh, The verse again, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you is part of a glorious doctrine of our union uh, with Christ. Uh, Unfortunately, it's a doctrine that's often affirmed, uh, but it's not marveled at. It's often a doctrine that's taken for granted. Christ in us can seem elementary. You know, I, I grew up in the church, and I would learn from a young age that when, unite, when you're united to Christ by faith, that Christ will live in you, that he lives in your heart. And it's kind of just taken as a given. But for Paul, this is far from elementary. 
Because he's pointing and he's saying, that's the mystery hidden for ages. He's inviting you to look at what he's seeing because he looks into the past and generations and he marvels at the mystery. Because in generations past, Moses asked God in Exodus 33, show me your glory. And God replies, you cannot see my face for no one may see me and live. And now that same God that Moses could not see He dwells inside Christians because of their union with Christ. What a mystery indeed. It's a mystery indeed that if Moses were to read this verse, to read verse 27, he would be absolutely astounded that he would recall being in the cleft of the rock as the glory of God passed by and shook him and thought, wow, if I poked my head out, I would be wiped out. But that God lives inside of a person? Average followers of Christ, that God can dwell in them. A mystery indeed. In generations past, the temple was built. It was the reestablishment of God dwelling among his people. But even then, God's presence was separated by a curtain. But now that God, who dwelled on the other side of the curtain, that God can dwell in human flesh? What a mystery. And it's all made possible because of the substitutionary death of Jesus on the cross. Here's how Tim Keller explains the mystery that Paul's marveling at. He says, In the crucifixion, we're told that the moment Jesus died, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom as if by two mighty hands from above. At his death, Jesus dismantled the old temple, and at his resurrection, he established the new one. Now when we unite with the risen Christ by faith, Through the Holy Spirit, the Shekinah glory presence of God that had dwelled behind the veil inaccessibly is now available to us. Think about how amazing that visual is. That when the temple was first built and the Shekinah glory of God came down and dwelt within the temple, that same God dwells in Christ's followers. Keller continues and he says, what this means for the church is remarkable. It means that a Christian is not primarily a nice person who subscribes to certain beliefs and codes. That Christianity is instead a radical regeneration of the heart and a reorientation of the life. We're regenerated when we believe because now the same divine presence that once shook mountains, terrified people, and killed living things on contact lives in us. That means that we who believe in Jesus are now temples in which the Holy Spirit of God dwells. It means that by being a Christian gives us access to the presence of God through prayer. Moses' unrealized yearning to see the light of God's glory and face is now our privilege. End quote. Do you relish in that privilege? Do you wake up in the morning and read a passage like Exodus 33 where Moses is saying, can I see your glory? And look in the mirror and say, I cannot believe that I am living Moses' unrealized dream. Not only do I see his glory, but Christ somehow, this God dwells in me. Paul puts it plainly, one chapter later, just flip the page. Look at Colossians chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. Can you flip the page and look at it? Verse 9 says, for in him... The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him 
who is the head of all rule and authority. Do you see that? He says, in Jesus, all of the, the fullness of deity dwells bodily, and we have been filled in him. He's who is the head of all rule and authority. Paul is gobsmacked. Do you know the God who existed before time? That God lives in you by faith, dear Christian. Do you know the God who rules over every throne and ruler and dominion and authority? That God lives in you by faith, dear Christian. The God whose very presence strikes sinners down. That God lives in you by faith, dear Christian, because Christ was struck down so he wouldn't have to be. By faith, you are now temples in which the Holy Spirit of God dwells. Are you as struck by Paul is in this, when it comes to this earth-shattering reality? That your faith was so united to Christ that divine presence lives in you. Do you realize that you're living Moses' dream? That the God he yearned to see, he, you don't just see in Jesus Christ, he dwells in you. I'm going to be honest, this realization isn't always real for me either. That oftentimes there's other realities that overwhelm me more. How about you? What overwhelms you more today? Joy at being a living, walking carrier of God? Or fear of becoming a living, walking carrier of a virus? What grounds you more? The unchanging glory of Christ in you? Or the changing circumstances out there? God, would you forgive us for constantly yearning for the secrets out there, all the while glossing over the true mystery of Christ in us in here? Oh, that God would grant us to behold the true riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in us. Because when we do that, we find that we find ultimate hope. Indeed, Christ in us is the hope of glory. And that's our second point. Christ in you is the hope of glory. Verse 27 again, Christ in you, the hope of glory. This isn't just some sterile doctrine, but the very hope of the Christian. What is, the hope, what is it the hope for? It's the hope of glory. A glory in this verse and in many places in the New Testament refers to the future glory of heaven. If you flip the page, just look at Colossians chapter 3, verse 3 and 4. He says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Sound familiar? And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Do you see Paul unfolding the script here? He says, if Christ is in you, that means, that means you're in Christ as well. Your life is hidden with Christ. And when that Christ, when your Christ, when he appears, when he returns in glory, you will appear with him in glory. That that is your hope. It's the hope of glory. Earlier on in Colossians 1 verse 5, he calls this the hope laid up for you in heaven. It's laid up for you. It's a hope that, that moth and rust cannot destroy. It's a hope that you can't put into your calendar app where you say, if I do this, 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 and this, then this will come and that hope will come. But it's a tangible hope. It's a real hope. It's your hope of glory that is laid out for you in heaven. Dear Christian brother and sister, do you see? Do you see? Because of Jesus Christ on the cross and because of his resurrection, you have Christ in you, the hope of glory, and nothing can take that away. 
Not a thing. It's laid out for you in heaven. It is waiting for you. And because of the reality of this hope, the saints in Colossae, they can get up in the morning. They can bear the fruit of faith and love for all the saints. They have the hope of future glory. Here's a question for our hearts today. Where do you look for for hope? Do you hope in your own hands? And you think if you take control and do all the right things, that a glorious finish awaits. Do you hope in your own knowledge that if you, maybe you can be informed enough, read enough articles and things like that to make all the right choices and then a glorious finish awaits? Do you put your hope in your own planning and you say, if I put this in the calendar and this in the calendar and then this will follow this and then will follow this and then, boom, a glorious finish will await. Today, would you hope in, the, in your Christ who dwells in you? Would you be, be reminded of the hope laid out for you in heaven? I fear we've become a people who look at our phones too much and look at our spiritual mirrors too little. We're quick to look out there through the windows of our phones for some momentary hope out there rather than looking in here through the mirror of the gospel for the eternal hope of Jesus Christ in us. Can you look, can you just do me a favor? Every day this week when you wake up, before you start scrolling about what's out there, before you start thinking about what's out there, would you stand in front of your mirror and just look and say, I see my sinfulness fully well. I see that if I were to come in contact with my holy God, I would certainly perish. But my Jesus took my deserving, my deserved perishing and now dwells in me. The divine God dwells in me. And has given me a hope that has taken away the sting of death. A hope that points to a glory that will one day be mine. Where moth and rust cannot destroy. And I choose, I choose today to be anchored in the greatness of the riches of the glory of that mystery. Christ in me, the hope of glory. If you started your day like that, don't you think your life would be different? I want my life to be different. I want what Paul has. Not some grand purpose out there, but Christ in you, the hope of glory in here. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Point one, Christ is in you. Point two, Christ in you is the hope of glory. Here's our last point. So toil in proclaiming Christ. So toil in proclaiming Christ. With this great truth, Paul gives us amazing implications. And you see them right in verse 28 and 29. Verse 28 reads, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. In these verses, we see the two big implications of the glorious mystery of Christ in us. And here's the first one. Implication number one is proclaim Christ. Proclaim Christ. Really, you should read verse 28 like this. Him we proclaim. He just finished talking about the glorious mystery. Here's the mystery hidden for ages and generations. To them, God chose to make known to the Gentiles how, glor how glorious and how rich this mystery is. It's Christ in you. So him we proclaim. 
Do you see him bursting out? He's saying, I can't help but speak of Christ. If it's true that I finally found this hidden treasure and that the God of the universe lives inside of me, I can't keep it in, I must proclaim Christ. There may be hurricanes going on outside. There may be a massive world disaster going on outside. But what comes inside, the Christ in us, our hope of glory is so great that it has to push my breath out to proclaim Christ. It's him I proclaim Now we see the internal engine that really drives Paul's zeal and proclamation. You know, it's not some external call. It's not even good external ministry conditions. It's not even, man, I go to a a great church and they manage ministry really well. And so that's why I'll keep proclaiming Christ. Right here, what drives Paul is Christ in us, the hope of glory. His external circumstances may look bleak, but his internal combustion engine is unchanged. And take note of how he does this. Look at this text. By warning and teaching in all wisdom. He's not just proclaiming. He's warning and teaching in all wisdom. He's doing it all in love. Picture a father with his children by the side of the road. Warning says, don't run across the road. And teaching says, before you cross the road, look left and then look right and then look left again. Both are crucial. And Paul's doing both as an expression of love. Both doing done in wisdom. Why? Christ in us, the hope of glory. Take, take note of who is called to do this task. You may read this and you think, ah, that's just something for Paul to do. But it's not. It's something for everyone. Do you notice that Paul shifts to plural language in this text? All the eyes have turned to we's. Look at verse 28 and 29. We proclaim that we may present everyone. What's the implication? Well, the work of proclaiming Christ is for all Christians. This isn't a message for the ministry types or for people who are, who are pastors and things like that. This is a message for us all because if Christ is in you and for every Christ follower, Christ is in you, that means we all proclaim Christ. Paul makes this clear in just two chapters later, Colossians 3.16. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Does that sound familiar? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. It's a command given to the whole church, and it's almost a direct quote. Task given to the whole church. Do you see the engine of Christ in us, the hope of glory, causing Paul to proclaim it out, teach and warn in all wisdom. And who does it? Everybody does it. And finally, take note of Paul's overall goal. What's the light at the end of the tunnel? Verse 29 says that we may present everyone mature in Christ. What's the payoff? What's the purpose? Simply this. It's the privilege and pleasure of presenting to Christ mature believers, not spiritual babies. It's rejoicing when those around us go from milk to solid food. It's the same type of joy that a parent has when they see their toddlers take their first step The end goal is maturity, a wholehearted, undivided devotion to Jesus Christ. It's a lifelong journey until Christ returns or he calls us home. And here you see how his internal uh, reality of Christ in us, the hope of glory, drives his external action. He wants to, Paul wants to proclaim Christ by warning and teaching in all wisdom. It's a mandate for everyone that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And all of this because of one unchanging reality— Christ in you, the hope of glory. You see, the glorious mystery drives the real glorious mission. That's his secret. Um, I'm going to level with you. 
This sermon was a lot easier to preach before the pandemic. These verses are actually part of my core purpose statement. It's a little document I have laminated. I look at it every single week to remind me of why I'm doing the things I'm doing. But before the pandemic, when I would read the words, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. When I would read those words, those words of glorious mission, it would be energizing. I'd be full of hope. Full of hope because it seems like the external circumstances look conducive to, just, to doing just that. But nowadays, when I read it, more often than not, I feel listless and wearied. But do you know why? Because when I read Christ, we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. And I look out and I say, wow, look at the potential for that to actually happen. I'm putting my hope in the wrong place. That's not Christ in us, the hope of glory. That's something out there and my hope being out there. It shows us, church, that we need the glorious mystery of the gospel even more now. It shows us that the very truth we heard last week at Easter that can so easily become yesterday's news because of new news this week that the resurrection and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ can never be yesterday's news. It is always our current reality. That that we have to anchor ourselves in the truth that we have been buried with him and raised with him. And therefore, it's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. That we come to to the throne room of God in our brokenness and we say, Lord, would you make that reality ring truer and louder than my circumstances? It means moments where I will look at my soul and talk to my soul and say, yes, lock down again, Andrew's soul. But, but has, has that changed Christ in you, the hope of glory? Is that different now, Andrew's soul? My soul can say, but it's so hard. Uh, I, I don't know how much longer. Lord, even following you has become tougher and tougher and tougher. It's so much harder out there. But would we, be- would we hear the beckoning of our Savior who says, but look at, look at in here, look at Christ in you, the hope of glory. All the stuff that's happened out there, has that changed Christ in you, the hope of glory? Has that truth grown f- dimmer? Has it faded because of the circumstances? Uh, dear church, please hear my heart for you. It's not your ministry output that I want, but your gospel joy. The joy of tapping into the riches of the glory of the mystery which is Christ in you. The joy of letting that overflow from your lips in proclamation, proclaiming the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Dear Christian, the world may seem dark, but you are not in darkness. For Christ has brought you into marvelous light. Would you join me in basking in this truth? Would you join me when I assure you tomorrow morning I will not be basking in this truth as much as I am now? In our fallenness as we continue to battle the flesh, would you join, would we join together in humbly, desperately calling for God to make this truth real in our lives? Would we resolve to proclaim Christ and then clinging to him who lives in here despite all that's going on out there? Would we resolve to be the salt and light that we are? Because even though things are crazy, we're still the church. We still have Christ in us, the hope of glory.
The first implication of Christ in us is the hope of glory is proclaim Christ. But thankfully, that is not the final word. Because here's the hopeful, beautiful second implication that God lovingly brings a tired church. Implication number two is toil with Christ's power. Verse 29 again says, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. I love how in this verse, right out the gate, Paul acknowledges, yeah, this is hard work. It's so hard that it requires toil. That means intense effort. More than that, it's struggle. Do you see that word struggling? (laughs) That word's a grace. It means that when we're in our lives trying to proclaim Jesus Christ to a watching world and it gets hard, you hear the voice of your father saying, I know. I see your struggle. And I know it's a struggle. The original Greek word for struggle here was typically used to describe agonizing wrestling contests. It was a fight. Paul had to wrestle to keep proclaiming Christ. And that's normal. There's no rose-tinted glasses here. The mission of proclaiming Christ, while glorious, is a toilsome struggle. But this verse gives us a final stunning counterbalance to the toil of proclaiming Christ. Here's the biblical balance. Do you see it? Here it is. We provide the toil. God provides the power. We provide the toil, but God provides the power. Look at verse 29 to see the balance. For this I toil, struggling. You see that? Human effort, exertion, but keep reading. For this I toil with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Here we see, finally, the power of God. Because of Christ in you, you have this immortal engine running inside of you. You might notice it all the time. Sometimes you might feel weak, but God tells you, take him at his word, that you may be providing very meager manpower, but Christ in you is providing the God power. And that he doesn't just give energy, but he works that energy in you. And not only that, he powerfully works that energy in you. In verse 29, the words energy, power, and works, they all come from the same Greek root word referring to the power of God. And this verse is stunning because nowhere else in the New Testament are these words combined like this, where the power of God is featured in three times in one little phrase. But it happens here. Do you know what that means? It means that amidst the toil and struggle of proclaiming Christ, And it means that right smack dab in the middle of 2021, God gives power upon power upon power. I'll say it again. He gives power upon power upon power. Do you feel powerless? Do you feel like you've been spending yourself for the proclamation of Jesus Christ? You feel spent. Take heart, dear brother and sister. Christ in you gives power, and not just a little, but power upon power upon power. Perhaps you're a ministry leader, a small group leader, uh, or, and you love the saints around you, but you are feeling burnt out and spent. Take heart, dear brother or sister. Christ in you gives power upon power upon power. Keep toiling. God provides the power. Perhaps you can't look at another update, another article. Yeah, your, your mind is burdened by all the anxieties of the churches, and you just don't know how you can make it through. Take heart. Keep toiling. God provides power upon power upon power. 
Maybe you can't even muster up enough energy to get on another Zoom meeting, and you can't take the roller coaster of all the changing restrictions. Maybe you want to be a faithful salt and light in this world, but you keep hitting wall after wall after wall. Dear brother or sister, keep toiling because God provides the power upon power upon power. Are you feeling powerless? For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within us. I know sometimes it doesn't feel like that. And sometimes you feel weaker and more lethargic than before. But can we just take God at his word? Can we cling to him and say, God, I believe this. I believe that Christ in us is that mystery hidden for ages and generations. And it's the most amazing thing. And now it's revealed. It's the greatest, richest, glorious mystery ever. And I still have it today. And because of that, I will still proclaim. I will still proclaim to the world. And as much as it is hard, as much as getting up and continuing to disciple my kids is hard, as long as as getting up and discipling through a screen is hard, even while there's less ministries to serve at, at church, even though those things are hard and we toil, and we struggle, we struggle with all the energy that you powerfully work within us. God, I cling to you because I believe in your strength being greater than the circumstances. Yes, storm out there, but Christ in us, the hope of glory. Let's pray. Our Father of glory, I pray would you give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge of you. As the Apostle Paul prays, would you give us, would you make the eyes of our hearts be enlightened that we may know what is the hope to which you've called us? God, I admit that so often um, the eyes of my heart are dark. They forget truth. And so I, I pray like the psalmist does as he meditates in Psalm 103. Soul, forget not his benefits. God, I pray, would you make us ones who are just like Paul, amazed at the amazing, glorious mystery of Christ in us. And Lord, I pray, would that shape our lips and would that give us a power that doesn't come from us? We need you because we're weak. But where we are weak, you are strong. So we trust you in your most precious name. Amen.